Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Uh, We are going to open up our Bibles now. We're continuing with our Genesis series today. Uh, So if you uh, have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open to Genesis chapter 25. And we are reading from verses 19 through to the end of the chapter. If you haven't got a Bible and you would like one, uh, have a look in the aisles. There are baskets in there. They've got Bibles in them. You can take one and read it today, or you can take one home if you don't have one at home. So Genesis chapter 5, sorry, 25, verses 19. I'm reading from the NIV. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac Sorry, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Today we're continuing our Genesis series, which we've done in stages over the last few years, and we're currently up to chapter 25. Today's reading commenced at verse 19 of that chapter, but the verses we didn't read at the start of the chapter are just too important to skip over, because in them we have the death of a central character in the Old Testament by the name of Abraham. Chapter 25 commences by telling us that Abraham took another wife, and it finishes by saying, and then he died. We don't know if they're correlated, but what we do know is he lived a long, long life until 175 years of age, and then he died. But he's a significant character in Scripture. And it's really important that before we move on to Isaac and Jacob and all the other characters in Genesis, it's really important that we stop and acknowledge the significance of Abraham. 
Have you ever noticed that we have a tendency just to move on really quickly um, from things in life and from people in life? And it's important that we stop sometimes and, and learn not to do that. Um, you probably heard during the week, I heard on the news that Doris Day passed away at age of 97 years of age. Now all the young people here are like straight over their head, like who never heard of her, no idea who she is. But for the more senior people in our church, you will know that Doris Day was a pretty big, pretty big deal for you. Um, she was, uh, so I've heard, she was a Hollywood actress. <laughs> you know, and a lot of huge musicals. Um, probably most famous for her role in Calamity Jane. And so the day that she died, all these messages started pouring in, these tributes from right around the world, from different people. And then as the tributes came in, the, the news program took all those tributes and then condensed it into th sort of like a 30-second clip on the news at night. And so people watch it and they go, oh, Doris Day died. And then they reminisce for, you know, a couple of minutes and maybe remember uh, some of her movies. And then the next day we just kind of move on with life. Closer to home... Recently, we lost a precious member of our own church family. One of our elders, Peter Brown. Peter was the husband of Jan and a dear friend to many of us. And we should be very slow to simply move on from someone like that. Instead, we should take the time to thank God for his life as a role model, to reflect on his example and what we can learn from that life, and to rejoice in the legacy he's left in his family and friends that will continue on now that he's gone to be with the Lord. This morning I was reminded of it because Pete's job on baptism days was always to let the water out of the baptismal tank. And I said to Jim after the baptism, oh, are you able to let the water out? And he said, do we usually do that? And I said, yes. And he said, how do we do that? I said, I've got no idea. <laughs> that was Pete's job. But now Jim um, has stepped up to be the person who lets the water out of the spa. So well done, Jim. But it's important that we acknowledge the lives of people who are important to us and significant in God's plan. And Abraham is definitely one of those people, and at this important juncture in the book of Genesis, it's important that we recap his story up until now. If you remember back to the earlier part in the series, we got at the second instalment of this series, we got to Genesis chapter 12. And Genesis 12 is a really important text in the Old Testament and in salvation history. It was a time where God chose Abram and made extraordinary promises to him. He said, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. There's going to be so many descendants that you won't be able to count them. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And so in God's salvation plan, he chose Abraham. And Abraham became a great nation, Israel. And Israel was the target of God's blessing. And that blessing was to flow from them to all nations on earth. And so Romans 4 tells us that Abraham is the father of us all. He's the father of us all. And that's really important to understand. He's very important. In Galatians 3.29 it says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. We know that the entire Bible points to Jesus. The Old Testament doesn't mention his name, but it's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to the fulfillment of the promises in him. We know the New Testament is all about Jesus. Follow Baptist Church is all about Jesus. He's the center. He's the point. He's the purpose of all of Scripture. And in God's plan, we see his blessing was ever-expanding. It started with one person, Abraham. It went from one person to one nation, Israel. And it went from one nation to all nations. And the eternal promises of God all come to pass in and through the person of the central character of Scripture, and that is Jesus. And so when we put our faith in him and what he did for us through his death and resurrection, conquering sin and death, 
and overcoming that with new life, we inherit the promises. Every one of the promises God has made, we inherit in him. Corinthians tells us that every single one of those promises is yes and amen in Christ. And we inherit them through the person of Jesus who comes from the lineage of Abraham the person that we're stopping and reflecting on today. In fact, in the genealogy of Jesus at the start of Matthew's Gospel, we see that it all starts with Abraham. First words are, Abraham had a son called Isaac, and then it goes through all the generations until it finally gets to Jesus himself. And so he's a very, very significant character in God's plan, and he's an important character to us. And his death is really a transition point in God's salvation story. God's plan may have started with Abraham, but it certainly doesn't stop with him. We know from Scripture that Abraham had many descendants. If you grew up in church in the 80s, you don't know it from Scripture, you know it from the song, don't you? Father Abraham. Remember the song? Father Abraham, many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, nod your head, turn around, sit down, right? If I did that, thank you very much. If I did the full version, it would go for an hour, but it was like the big song before Shout to the Lord came along. You know, Father Abraham was the big song in Christian circles, and we used to sing it over and over again on repeat. But it reminds us that Abraham had many descendants. And at this point in the story, these descendants are starting to come um, pretty fast from Abraham. At the start of the chapter, 25, with Abraham's new wife, Keturah, we see he has more kids, six more, in fact. Zimran, uh, Joshkan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And so for those who are pregnant right now or thinking about having more kids and you're fighting over names and you're wondering, what am I going to get out of this sermon today? Well, there's six new names to choose from. I mean, Zimran is a beautiful name. And so if you want to go with that, go with it. Looks good as well, but Zimran is a nice name. And there's six names that you can choose from there. And from these new kids come a whole bunch um, of more descendants called the Asherites, the Letishites, and the Lemites. And so the descendants are starting to spread. And when Abraham dies, we're up to that in the narrative now. We come to an important part in the story, and the question hangs, how is God's blessing going to continue? And more specifically, who is it going to continue through? And so you, if you're familiar with Abraham's story, you probably remember that when God made the promise of greatness to Abraham, it was dependent on him and Sarah being able to have children. It all hinged on that. But the problem was that Abraham's wife Sarah was barren. And so after waiting for a period of time and in their you know, equation, it took too long. And so they decided that they'd try and make the promises of God happen in their own way. God's taking too long. We're going to do it our way. And so Sarah one day says to Abraham, hey, Abe, why don't you go and grab Hagar, the servant, and maybe we could have a child through her and, and maybe the promises of God would come to pass through that child. Now, Abraham being a, you know, a pretty dense kind of a husband... Sort of says, yeah, babe, that sounds like a good idea. I'll go and get uh, Hagar and we'll um, have a baby. And so they did, and the baby was called Ishmael. But it's clear that God's plan wasn't coming through Ishmael. God's plan was coming through the child of Abraham and Sarah. And so years later, at the age of 90, Sarah finally conceived. Abraham was 100. And she gave birth to Isaac. And God said it was through Isaac that his promise would continue. Now, last week, Dave relaunched our series in Genesis, and he spoke about Isaac and Rebekah and and how they met, and and that was a very helpful sermon. And today, we come to the part where Rebekah finally conceives. She, too, had to wait for 20 years, and then she finally um, conceives, and she gives birth to these two babies. Now, you should be fairly familiar with this story. 
because we spoke about it just a couple of weeks ago um, when I spoke on labels. And if you missed that message, you can find it on the podcast and you can learn a lot more about Jacob's life story. But to summarise, when Rebecca falls pregnant, there are two childs in her womb. She's pregnant with twins. One's called Esau, he's the oldest, and the youngest is called Jacob, which means deceiver. And from the moment they start to grow in the womb, they're at war with one another. Who here can remember long trips for family holidays in the car with young kids? Aren't they refreshing, those, those trips? When you're on an eight-hour trip and you're backing out the driveway and it's like, Mom, you touch me. <laughs> Mom, I want the chips. It's my turn with the iPad all the way for eight hours. Is there anything more um, effective than for developing patience than a long car trip with young kids? It's very, very challenging. Well, for Rebecca, it didn't just start when the kids were old enough to fight over the iPad. It started in the womb. They were fighting in the womb. And she, she's got all this stuff going on. There's this activity. And she's thinking, what's going on? I prayed for a child. And now I've got two. And it's kind of like World War Three, or well, then World War One for her in the womb. It's happening inside of me. God, what's going on? And so she inquires of the Lord. She says, these kids are crazy. And the Lord answers in verse 23 and says to her, there are two nations in your womb, and the two peoples from within you will be separated. One will serve the other, and the older will serve the younger. And so Esau is born first, and Jacob comes out grabbing at his heel because they've been having this massive fight in the womb. And as they grow, they're constantly at each other. They don't really get along. As they grow, it also becomes very clear that they are very different kids. Esau is your outdoors kids kid. He loves hunting and fishing and getting dirty. He's the kind of kid at primary school that always comes home with grass stains and mud down the pants every night. He's that kind of kid. He loves hanging out with his dad and they do some of this stuff together. Jacob's the entire, uh, the, the absolute opposite. He's entirely different to Esau. He'd rather stay at home. He's an indoors sort of a guy and he likes cooking with his mum. And so you've got this outdoor guy, you've got this indoor guy. They don't like each other and they're growing up at each other. And you can imagine the context in the home, constant bickering, constant fighting. Now, in their culture, the blessing of the parents was handed to the oldest child. It was called a birthright. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it was basically handing the oldest child the priestly role in the family. Um, and not only that, they got a double portion of the parents' inheritance, which is a wonderful idea. And so by right and by birth, that belonged to Esau. And so Jacob, as he grew up, started to live up to his name. He's a little dishonest, he's kind of sneaky and sly. And one day Esau comes home, he's been out in the field, he's had a really active day and he walks inside and he's like, man, I am starving. And as he opens the door, the aroma hits his nostrils and it fills his nostrils because Jacob's been at home with mum cooking stew. And it's his famous red stew and Esau's like, he's, he's this guy that's kind of led by his appetites and he's like, I've got to have some of that stew. And Jacob, being that deceiving kind of a guy, sees an opportunity. And Jacob says to him, well, Esau, you can have some of my beautiful stew. All you need to do is sell me your birthright. And Esau's like, yes, bring it on. Like, I'm going to die. I'm that hungry. I'm going to die. So a birthright is no good for me anyway. So you can have the birthright if you just give me the stew. And so that day Esau strikes an agreement with Jacob and the priestly role and the double inheritance is traded for one bowl of his red stew. And the passage finishes by saying that Esau, from that point on, despised his birthright. It was instant gratification, the stew was yummy, followed by instant regret. 
And I think in life, we have moments in our own life where we can relate to that. We do things that give us instant gratification, but then it's followed by this sense of instant regret, and that's what Esau was feeling. Now, we could easily read this story, and we could say, well, Jacob got the birthright and the blessing of the older son, even though he was the younger son, because he was a deceiver. And in many ways, that is true. But at a greater level, and in an ultimate way, we need to acknowledge that it actually happened by God's design. Remember what God said to Rebekah when the two sons were in the womb before they were even born? Two nations in your womb, two people that will be separated. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And so God allowed Jacob's actions, even the dodgy ones, to fulfill his plans and purposes. Now I think that we can struggle with that at times. We can struggle with that thought. As I reread the passage that I preached on less than two weeks ago, the thing I was really challenged by this time was the sovereignty of God. I was really challenged by that. If you're a note taker, there are two very simple points today. And the first one is this, that God is God. God is God. It's the Christian doctrine of God's sovereignty. And for me, it's one of the most magnificent and beautiful truths of Christianity. It's one of the great foundations of our faith that we have a God who is in charge. He is the creator and the sustainer of everything that he has made and he is completely in control. Sovereignty of God is an amazing doctrine because it gives us great confidence and security in life, in faith and in the God that we worship. Nothing surprises him. Nothing overwhelms him. And when things don't make sense, the lack of understanding is not with God, it's with us. And it's at that point that we need to say, even if I don't understand it, I need to trust God. We see from the immediate issues in our lives, we we kind of see what's going on in our circumstances and our current situation. And and based on what we're going through, we form opinions based on that. And we decide what's right and wrong based on our idea of what we see. But God sees the beginning from the end. And we have a view, we can't see the forest from the trees, but God has a bird's eye view And he can see the plan. He knows the plan because he designed the plan. And he knows what's best even if we can't see it in the moment. If I'm honest today, I find there have been many times in my life where I've been quick to question God. I've questioned the plan. God, why is the plan this way? When Lenny, our son, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 3, I asked the question, why? God, why would you allow this? Here we are serving you. We've given our lives to follow you. We've just planted a church and now our son has been diagnosed with this lifelong illness. Why? How could that possibly be part of your plan? I question God in that moment. And there have been many other occasions in life. And and I think today if I was to take a survey or a poll in this room, I think I'd find that I'm not alone. There are times where we don't understand. There are times where we question God. We're very quick to question God. And if we're honest, we've all had times where we think to ourselves, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. The most common question asked by non-Christians today is often the question, if God is a God of love, why is there so much suffering in the world? And really that question is doing essentially two things. It's questioning God's goodness and perhaps even his existence. And secondly, it's considering the possibility that if we were God, we'd do a better job of running this planet. If I was God, I think that's a very dangerous thought. 
1995, Joan Osborne released a song called One of Us. Does anyone remember that song? If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? What would you do if you had just one question? And yeah, yeah, God is great. And yeah, yeah, God is good. And yeah, 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 but what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. It's a bit rude, isn't it? Just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it? If seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets and yeah, yeah, God is great and yeah, yeah, God is good. But what if God was one of us? Well, I think if God was one of us, it would be a mess. I think we'd cease to exist because only God is God. And in our short-sighted, our generation is the most evolved kind of arrogance. We try to play God and we assess the state of affairs in our world. We're confused by what we see and perhaps we think if we were God, we wouldn't allow any of this to occur. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm not God. I'm glad for you that I'm not God. I'm glad that you're not God. Because I reckon I know what I'm like on a bad day. I know what I'm like in a bad moment. I would have just lost patience with this world by now. I would have just said, look, let's just wind this thing up. I've had enough of all this sin and evil and wickedness. Let's just wind this up because I've had enough of it. But we have a God who's slow to anger, abounding in love. He's holding everything together all at once because he is sovereign. He is gracious and kind. He is omniscient, which means he's infinitely wise. He's omnipotent, which means that he has unlimited power. He's omnipresent, which means he's present everywhere all at once. God is God. But what if God was one of us? I think one person who got a little glimpse into what it would be like to be God for a day was Jim Carrey in the movie Bruce Almighty. And he found it pretty difficult to be God. I want to just show a short clip on the screen to demonstrate that. So I'll hand over to the media guys. Well, you took the job, Bruce, so I suggest you get to it. Prayers, prayers, okay, prayers. Uh, this creepy whisper thing has to end. Organization and management. That's what I need. I need a system, something concrete. Concentrate. Files. Let all prayers be organized into files. Well, that takes care of the voices. Not exactly a space saver, though. Grace might notice. I know. Prayer post-its! God was Bruce Almighty. That's how he answered prayers. And it goes on to show that he just presses reply all and he gives them all the answer to their prayers and it's absolute chaos. And, and sometimes we think that God's like that. He's just going to answer the prayers the way we like it. But God knows things that we don't know. And it's a very humorous movie and if you haven't seen it, I recommend seeing it. But it gives us a little glimpse into how complex it would be to be God. 
even just to answer the prayers right around the world every day. You see, we think with such simplicity, and even our own family can overwhelm us at times, and yet we sometimes present like we have all the answers. But the truth is we can't even see past our own circumstances, let alone understand all the issues of our world. Our knowledge has such massive limitations. But in our human arrogance, we still think at times, if I was God, well, if I was God reading today's story, I wouldn't have chosen Jacob. No way. His name meant usurper, deceiver, supplanter. And that would be enough for me to go, nah, pass, next. Didn't God know that? Didn't God know what his name meant? I wouldn't have chosen Jacob. Jacob was a slimy, sneaky schemer that you couldn't trust. I don't naturally warm to people like that. I don't want to hang out with them on the weekend. If I had the choice to hang out with Jacob or Esau, I'd choose Esau any day of the week. He just seems like a lot more fun. He'd be outdoors doing fun stuff and he's an upfront kind of a guy. You'd always know where you stood with a guy like Esau. If I was God, I wouldn't have elected Jacob. For me, it just seems like a risky plan. God's got this salvation plan. It's the most important plan ever put in place in human history. And if you've got something that important, you want to gather the best people, don't you? You want people, you want the consultants in, you want the experts, you want the professionals, you want people that are of good standing in the community, you want people that have good character. You want those sort of people on the most important projects. This is God's foundation for our redemption. And from where I stand, Jacob is just not of that calibre. He doesn't tick the character box for me, and I wouldn't choose him. But I'm not God. God is God. And God chose Jacob even before he was born to be a significant link in this magnificent, magnificent you know, salvation chain, to be a person who he would use to see his purposes come to pass. This is one of the things I love about God, and we should take great encouragement from this this morning, that God can choose and use a person like Jacob And it tells us that he can choose and use a person like you. And he can choose and use a person like me. He's not waiting for superstars. He doesn't need people who've got it all together. He doesn't wait till we're just spick and span and squeaky clean. In his wisdom and in his sovereignty and in his plan, he chooses and uses people like Jacob and he chooses and uses people like you and me. How could God choose someone like Jacob? How could God choose someone like you? How could God choose someone like me? How? How? Because he's God. Not everyone was happy with God's decision to elect Jacob. I know Esau, his brother hated him. He wasn't happy with that plan. I know Isaac, the dad, his favourite was Esau. So he wasn't happy with the plan either. And I don't think any of us here this morning would commend Jacob for the way he obtained it. And we could easily look at the story and just conclude that he only got the position because he deceived his brother. But it's clear in this passage, and we must acknowledge, that God chose Jacob for the task and allowed the events that occurred in Jacob's life for his purpose to ultimately be be accomplished. It wasn't a surprise for God. It wasn't unexpected. It wasn't plan B or C or D. It wasn't unplanned because God is sovereign and in his wisdom he elected Jacob and while it looked like a a doomed plan at the time, as we look back with the benefit of hindsight, we're struck by the reality that perhaps God knew something that we don't. Maybe God saw something in Jacob that we couldn't. You see, God elects people not because of anything they've done, but by his grace. And when he elects people, he doesn't just see who they are, but he also sees who they're going to be. Ronald today gave his testimony before going through the waters of baptism and you see some of his journey and Ronald's not the person he used to be. His life has changed in Christ, but he's also not the person he's going to be. 
That's the journey that all of us are on, this sanctification journey. So we give our life to Jesus. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And day by day, he's transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. And it's a process and a journey that we're all on. And the thing is this, that man judges the outward appearance, but God judges the heart. And as God looked at Jacob, he saw an imperfect, sinful man with great potential. Great potential. So we read through the story, we see that Jacob didn't stay as Jacob. He had a moment with God, a wrestle with God, an encounter with God. And God changed his life, changed his name from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel, which means someone who has wrestled with God and has prevailed. God changed his name, God changed his heart, but you'd never know it at the time. Went to the men's convention this weekend at Belgrave Heights, and on the first night, a guy called Nev got up and gave his testimony. Something that happened to him years ago when he was a younger man. His best mate was his brother. And one night his brother rang and said, Hey, I, wanna, I want you to come meet me at the pub. I don't have my car, so come on down. We'll play some pool and we'll have some drinks. And so Nev went down and met his brother and they had some drinks and they played some pool. Then they had some more drinks and they played some more pool and then they had some more drinks and then they played some more pool. And at the end of the night, Nev drove them home. And he's driving them home down a stretch of road that he knew so well. He'd done it hundreds of times before, and they had to make a turn across traffic, which he'd done hundreds of times previously. And on that night, when he, he turned the corner, he saw a gap, but he didn't realise until after he'd turned, because he had too much alcohol, that that gap was actually a car coming straight towards them. And it hit them right down the middle. And it tipped their car upside down, and they ended up hanging there in their seatbelts with the car on its roof. Nev stopped in the moment and he kind of moved his neck and he moved his hands and he moved his legs and he thought it's a miracle, everything's okay, it's in one piece. And then he looked over in the passenger seat at his brother. His brother was unconscious, his nostrils were filled with blood and there were air bubbles that were coming out. And as they sat there in the car trying to get out, in the next few minutes he, he watched as his brother died in front of his eyes. Unbelievable tragedy absolutely caused by a person who'd done the wrong thing. Nev got sent to prison. His first and only child was born while he was in prison. But in prison, he had an encounter with God. He came alive in his faith. God was doing something significant in his heart and he started to run Bible studies with other prisoners. As they arrived, he would go and he'd go and tell them about all the Christian things that were happening in the, in the prison. He said he never got his head beaten in for it. He said, that's a miracle. And he was in Pentridge. And over that time, people came to know the Lord. He started to help with an anger management course. And, and there was a massive change in the prison. And I thought about his story, and I thought, if I was God, I wouldn't have chosen Nev. After what he'd done with all the sin and shame and brokenness in his life, the irresponsibility that had cost his brother his life, I wouldn't have chosen Nev. But I wouldn't have chosen Jacob either. And I'm reminded that I'm not God. God is God. God chose Nev. And God chose Jacob. You see, God sees the things that we can't see. He knows the things that we don't know because God is God. Last weekend, we had an election here in Australia. In a democratic society, all Christians had the opportunity to cast a vote on their preferred political party and their preferred prime minister. And some people in this country and in this state and even this room are very happy with the result and others aren't. There are many people who aren't happy with the result. And social media really went into meltdown after the result. It was a bit of a shock and, you know, everyone was posting on there and it went from sort of mild irritation to fury to just complete hysteria. It's like the sky was falling in. 
Some people said, well, now that we've voted for a Liberal government that, that was going to be the death of the Great Barrier Reef and koalas were going to be extinct and you know, voting for more lethal fires and it's the death of our children and grandchildren and there was all this hyperbole, hyperbole on, on social media and, and I've got to say, God help us if we're relying on any politician or political party to solve all the problems of the world that only God can truly redeem. If we're relying on the Liberal government or the Labor government or, God help us, the Greens or anyone else, we're in a lot of trouble because they can't solve the issues we've got apart from God. And we're reminded in a time like this that it's God in whom we trust and we serve a God who's completely in control. You know, the result went against the media's commentary. It contradicted the opinion polls. But when the votes were counted, the nation may have been surprised, but God was not surprised. Romans 13.1 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Scott Morrison is the Prime Minister of Australia because of the votes and some of the preferences, but ultimately, at a higher level, he's Prime Minister because God has not only allowed it, but he's also established it. How do we know that to be true? Sometimes we don't like that. How do we know it to be true? We know it from Scripture. The votes of Australia may have put Scott Morrison in the position of Prime Minister of this country, but we also must acknowledge at a higher level that God himself has allowed this to happen. If God wanted to stop this, he could stop it like that. God has allowed this to happen, and regardless of where you stand in the political divide, we should not forget that God is sovereign. Now, that doesn't mean that we just submit to governments no matter what they do. You know, we have a, God as our ultimate authority, heaven is our ultimate citizenship, and God's word is our ultimate word. And there are times where we can't in all good conscience obey what a government tells us to do. If you want to know how to interact with politicians, we covered this in our Romans series last year. I've put the link in your notes uh, with a link to that sermon. And of course, we should always advocate for what's right. We should be a voice for justice in this world as representatives of the kingdom of God. We should stand on God's word when it comes to issues of morality and relationships. At times we should lobby our politicians for change. And we should be ambassadors for Christ both in our words and in our actions. But we're also commanded in scripture by God to respect, submit and pray for those in authority. And when we don't understand why God has established someone or something, it's important to remember that perhaps God sees things that we don't yet see. In 1 Timothy, Paul urges Timothy to pray for all leaders. He says this, he says, I urge you then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. Now we might think, yeah, but they didn't have the politicians we've got in Australia. If they had the politicians that we've got today, they wouldn't do this. No, they had Nero. The emperor of Rome, a man who was brutal towards Christians, a man who fed them to wild animals, hung them on crosses and burnt them on stakes in the garden as the guests arrived for dinner. And Paul still tells Timothy that his job in that environment with those leaders is to pray even for them. In many ways, we are living in deeply uncertain times, both locally and globally. There's much political and economic volatility. Our culture is changing And it's easy to become despondent and feel insecure in times like these. Yet as Christians, 
Our ultimate hope is not in the rules of this age, nor in the state of our economy, but in the sovereign creator of the universe. And we can trust in him. We can take great confidence that he knows what he's doing. He sees the plan that we can't see. We also know that God is good all the time. He's faithful. He's kind. He's loving. He's true. He's working all things together for good for those who love him. Isn't it so good to know this morning that God's working. He's at work today for you and me because we love him. He's working all things together for good for us. Because we love him. That's a wonderful truth. He cares about the poor and the oppressed and the marginalised more than we ever could. And so whether you're liberal or labour or something else, today you can trust in the sovereignty of God, knowing that regardless of who is in power, God is still on the throne. God is still in control because God is God. Which leads me to the second point which I want to finish with today. If God is God, we are not. If God is God, we're not. To live a life of faith is to live in a dualistic reality that needs to occur in our lives. It's to trust God, and to trust God it means at times we've got to relinquish control of aspects of our lives and of the things that we don't understand. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6, one of the most famous passages and one of the most helpful passages of all Scripture, says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Those verses are so well known, and really they're all about the sovereignty of God and putting our trust in a God that knows the plan, the beginning from the end, from eternity to eternity. And we've got to confront the the reality that either God's on the throne or we are. We can't have it both ways. And so if we find ourselves on the throne of our own lives, leaning on our own understanding, we need to remove ourselves and make way for the king to take his rightful place in our lives. To do that, we need to understand that God is God and we are not. Throughout God's word, we see his unfolding plan come to pass in some of the most unexpected ways, through some of the most unlikely people. And if we were God, I'm sure we wouldn't have done it that way. I don't reckon I would have had the king of kings being born in a manger either. I don't reckon I would have allowed him to suffer and die at the hands of the Romans. I wouldn't want Jesus' precious blood to be spilled, but I also wouldn't be saved. And neither would you if we lived out my plan. God is God, and we are not. And when we don't understand, we should put our trust in him, because even though the Jacob story made no sense at the time, we can look back now and we can see that God was at work. I want to finish this morning by asking each of us to reflect on our own lives and consider what areas of our lives we may be holding on too tightly. We may be leaning too much on our own understanding. What areas of our lives do we need to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God? Maybe there's things in your own life, they're consuming your thoughts, they're filling you you with fear and stress and worry and anxiety because you don't know the future and you don't know how it's all going to work out. And I want to encourage you today to let go and to let God, to trust him even with those things. And maybe for you, it is around the recent election and what's going on in our world and you're all worked up about it and you don't know what to do and it has you in despair. And I want to say today that, For you, you need to remember today, God is still in control. 
Perhaps it's closer to home and you're worried sick about your kids who are going off the rails and walking away from God. I want to encourage you today to commit it to prayer because God is still sovereign. Maybe you don't understand a situation in your life. You don't know what to do next. I want to encourage you today to trust in the Lord your God with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and he will make your path straight. God is God and we are not. And so let's be a community of people who trust in him even in the times when we don't understand. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what, what a thought it is that this morning we can come to you, the creator of the universe, the God who can do all things, the God who is faithful and kind and loving and just, the God who loves us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Lord, we don't understand that plan. We know how much it costs you, but Lord, we trust you. We've put our faith in you and we have come to know you as a result of your plan. And so today we acknowledge, Lord, that your plan is still happening. There's still things happening that you, you have got working together for good. And we don't understand them all. And Lord, sometimes we think, well, if we were God, we'd do it differently. But we're not. You are. And so today we trust in you. And we say, Lord God, I pray that you would help us in those times where we feel out of our depth, where we feel confused, where we feel lost where we don't know what to do next, Lord, I pray that we would be people that would turn to prayer, turn to praise, and turn to trust, knowing that you are working all things together for good. Lord, I thank you for every person in this room. Lord, you know what they're going through. I don't. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would highlight the things in their hearts today that they're struggling with, the wrestles they're having that are weighing them down, that are causing them to be stressed out and anxious and in despair. Lord, we know you're a God that never leaves us or forsakes us. And so I pray that you'd wrap your arms around them this morning, that you remind them that you are here and that you would give them wisdom. Your word says, Lord, when we lack wisdom, when we don't know what to do, all we need to do is ask and you give it to us. And so today we unashamedly and deliberately ask for wisdom as your people in a changing culture, in a changing world, we need your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us to be the people of God you're calling us to be. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't shrink back, but we'd rise up and stand for what is right and true and good. And today we pray this for your glory. And we pray it in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it's stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.